Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. Well, there were two important moments of human rights advocacy for people experiencing homelessness in Australia in the late 20th century. And they were both, of course, reactions against the economic consequences of neoliberalism. But what fascinated me was how different in approach and outcome they actually were. The first moment was relatively early in the neoliberal era. The Hawke Labor government was in power federally. This is the government that had actually floated the dollar, deregulated the financial system and introduced privatisation. So that first moment actually centred on children. There was, a, there was a national inquiry on homeless children established by HERIOC, which is the Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission, and it reported in 1989. Well, it was obviously a response to the high rates of unemployment of working-class youth, particularly in manufacturing, following the globalisation of the economy. It was chaired by Brian Burdekin, who was a lawyer with very strong uh, labour connections. He'd actually worked as the press secretary for the former Prime Minister, ignominiously dismissed in 1975, but in 1977, Burdekin had been his press secretary. Burdekin was a highly effective media performer. He made use of the aura that was developing around human rights in the early 90s in this commission. He was very confident in his role. And in one sense, of course, he knew he was talking to his own side of politics when he was delivering his report. Well, I think the public visibility of this moment was considerably enhanced by the airing of a documentary film on primetime television around the same time it reported. Its interviews with homeless kids left the audience with horrific horrific images of the abuse that they suffered. But while it was compelling, this film was selective. It really focused only on street, street kids, whereas the report showed that experiences of homelessness were quite varied and that some young people were certainly able to reconcile with their families. But it was the film that cut through, I think. Um, The ABC switchboard was jammed for hours following the first episode. Only the rugby did better in the ratings, according to the Sydney Morning Herald. The federal government's response was to dedicate a large sum, over $100 million over four years, to a new program that was going to provide services and accommodation for homeless and disadvantaged young people. Look, I'll come back to the longer terms of that um, shortly, But just to briefly outline, I guess, that second moment, it looked quite different. It came in the early 2000s. Its actors were less confident. In fact, they were almost close to despair, I think. And it certainly didn't have mainstream media attention. But I think it was a really important micro-social movement. And it's actually quite salutary to us now as as we face sort of a, a world which is, you know, even worse, I suppose, in terms of the erosions of of democratic um, rights. It was a micro-social movement that comprised community housing advocates, human rights lawyers and university-based scholars. And it represented deep concern over the Howard government's erosions of democratic norms, very strong frustration with the direction that society had been taken under his leadership. Howard had been in power since 1996, and his government made no attempt to hide its efforts to silence people's, people sorry, whose views it found threatening. It abolished ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, in 2004. It defunded National Shelter, the peak housing body, and it cut the budget 
of Heriot. The issue is also, of course, saw the ascendancy of law and order policy here, sorry, law and order politics here and globally. And it saw the increasingly repressive use of the law in, against people in public space. New move on and begging laws were passed in all state jurisdictions in the 1990s to increase the powers of police who targeted people who were young, Indigenous and both. So it's not surprising that lawyers, including legal academics, were dominant in this movement. They were aided by the presence in Australia of offices of international human rights bodies, such as the Centre on Housing Rights and Evictions, and the UN Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, who held workshops for community housing activists in, in 2004. 2004 was also a really important publishing high point, I think, with significant human rights and homelessness journals giving special, edi uh, 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 special editions to the subject of, of, of homelessness. Um, the Australian Journal of Human Rights, the Alternative Law Journal, and Parity, the national publication of the Council to Homeless Persons, all dedicated special editions to homelessness and human rights in 2004. The critique at this moment, I think, was holistic rather than specifically focused on one group, such as children. Activists really did want to offer an alternative to uh, what neoliberalism was, was dishing up. The inequities of global economic globalisation had undermined what one academic, Diane Otto, called the precious sense of civic responsibility on which community activism had rested in her memory back in the 1970s and even in the early 80s. Human rights, I think, offered for these people an alternative narrative, one that looked towards a society that was, in their words, more hopeful and humane. They didn't quite say so, but they almost implied, I think, that there was nowhere else to go. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very happy to look at, I guess, the longer-term outcomes of those moments, because I think we need to distinguish those because it's only with, with hindsight that we can see, you know, with greater clarity what the effects of, you know, these particular moments were. Um, because I think, I guess my, my short answer to that question is that much more holistic structural change came out of the second and the first, even though it didn't look like, you know, the, the first looked like a really important moment and it was in all sorts of ways. I mean, if we actually go back to that moment, it did lead to an increase in medium and long-term accommodation, and it did make a difference to the experience of some young people at the time. But, and it's the other thing about it we mustn't forget, for people who are actually frontline workers in the field, it gave them a real injection of hope. Um, you know, they, they, they were, you know, really sort of heartened, I think, by, you know, the support that the idea of housing as a right actually got. But the... the tragedy of that was that it was really dealing with symptoms rather than going to the causes because many of the initiatives for, for homeless youth with that hundred million dollars uh, many of them were pilot program uh, sorry pilot projects or they had a limited lifespan um, and sadly but not really surprisingly therefore another government report in 1995 found that the number of homeless youth had increased what the report didn't do was challenged the direction of government policy. And this is what critics at the time actually observed. One of the most trenchant was a sociologist from the University of Melbourne, um, Peter Dwyer, who was very uh, admiring of the way in which the report had spelt out the problem, but was deeply disappointed that it didn't actually examine what he called the unjust and divisive impact of the government's economic policies that actually 
created those conditions in the first place. Very deeply, deeply disappointed that its major recommendation was, in his words, yet another program. We mustn't forget that Dwyer was one of a larger group of scholars quite critical of the government's policies at this time. Of particular importance was the work of the economist Peter Saunders, who used international comparison to show that economic growth was not actually impeded by the size of welfare spending, as was the, you know, the current discourse, rather that the economic crisis of the past decades couldn't be blamed on the, the growth of welfare. So one of the paradoxes of this story, I think, is that Burdekin's proximity to government and media may have actually increased the immediate impact of that moment, but limited the trenchancy of the critique. There is another sort of ambiguity, I think, in the longer-term impacts of the Burdekin report. It certainly made homelessness visible as a social problem. People, all the experts in the field, look back to Burdekin as, you know, this is when homelessness actually got on the agenda. But in the 1990s, there were a number of important critics that were actually saying, well, what are we, what's it getting on the agenda to say? And they were worried that some of the, that certainly the film and some of the imagery used in promoting the inquiry itself were quite objectifying. They were seeing this moment as, as, you know, the first of a series of panics about homelessness. Panics that actually, you know, rather than critiquing, the, the, you know, what was happening as socially dysfunctional, that actually created a situation where, you know, homeless people themselves were stigmatised. You know, homelessness became this personal condition. And it, the, 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 the net result of all this was reinforcing the need for these remedial programs rather than better economic policies, which would mean that people wouldn't become homeless in the, in the first place. So I think the outcomes of the second moment were more structural. We get specialist legal advocacy services. We get state Labor governments actually passing human rights laws, Victoria and AC, the ACT, um, that could be used to support homeless people. But the most important thing that actually happened in the longer term with this um, second moment was that there were positive housing conditions, uh, sorry, positive housing initiatives taken by both state governments and the federal government when in 2007, when uh, Kevin Rudd led Labor to victory federally, that were, were constituted, you know, a really important paradigm shift. Now, these came out of a really important sort of uh, international movement based on, you know, evidence-based research that, identified this sort of model called Housing First as, you know, much more effective in dealing with homelessness than anything that had ever gone before. It was effective in helping people to maintain tenancies with what are called wraparound support services. But what you didn't have to do was give them, you know, year after year of um, emergency accommodation, which meant that they were unsettled, that they, you know, didn't know how long they had, they couldn't plan for the future. But if you actually gave people long-term accommodation and gave them more or less unconditional support, that they would actually stop being homeless. And doing that, the great <laughs> triumph of this particular model is that doing that is less expensive than keeping people in hospitals, in prisons, and in this uh, emergency accommodation that looks like it's fabulous, but actually, you know, is a revolving door. All the, the theorists in, through the 90s and into the 2000s, all the people who were researching homelessness were saying, there aren't enough exit points for people leaving homelessness. You know, they're ready to go. But where do they go? We haven't got any housing. So the great conceptual breakthrough of the, the 90s and the 2000s was this new policy model 
They're, they're not all the same, but they're often referred to collectively as housing first. And the Rudd government actually adopted the, some of the principles of housing first when it came into power in 2007. Now, the, the human rights activists weren't the only reason why he did that, but I think they played an important part in, you know, preparing the way for it. Um, when he actually introduced this new policy, he didn't use the language of human rights, but he justified the principle on the very firm, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> principle that housing is a right, not a charity. And that's what those people had been saying, you know, for the previous decade. So I think the power of the second movement derived uh, in part from advocates' distance from government rather than their closeness to it and their location within ins the institutions of civil society that still had some influence even after Howard. Universities, community housing organisations and human rights officers. Why has this been overlooked? Um, I guess, look, historians tend not to write a great deal about the recent past, but the other thing is that uh, historians tend not to write about the history of homelessness. So certainly in Australia, I'm one of the few people, I think, that's bringing, you know, um, a long lens and I guess the, the, the approach of a historian, the comparative uh, approach of a historian, that is comparing what we have now with what's gone before and therefore asking all the questions about why it's like that. You know, I'm, I'm bringing that to the, the, this, this work, which is not to say that people haven't, you know, my work in, in bringing the comparative approach is very uh, hugely indebted to all the people who have done, you know, the sociologists and the economists who've done great work on actually mapping, you know, human rights and the lawyers, sorry, and, and human rights and homelessness and the lawyers who are out there, you know, making sure that we get it, you know, that, that the law uh, can do the, the best it can to support people in these, you know, the, well, the most vulnerable people in our society. For me, the significance of the second movement really became clear when I read a comment made by Justice Ronald Sackville in an address to the Council to Homeless Persons in 2004. He'd actually chaired an inquiry into homelessness and the law in 1975. But what he was saying in 2004 was that while it was certainly difficult to get figures, homelessness was probably worse than it had been back in 1975. And in his view, this was because in those intervening years, Australia, like most rich countries, had made what he called a bargain with the devil. And he said, the thing that is so iniquitous about this is that it rests on the proposition that extreme poverty for some people wouldn't actually undermine the quality of life for the prosperous and their children. He pointed out that, in fact, this idea had supplanted the post-World War II assumption that it would, that is, that gross inequality would lead to the deterioration in the quality of life for everybody. So what he was doing was picking up on a very deep cultural shift. And what he found was that endemic homelessness was one of the results of that shift. So I think for me, this, this idea of free market orthodoxy as a bargain with the devil is extremely powerful. And it does represent, I think, the high degree of disgust that many people felt about what the Howard government was doing, and I think what a lot of people feel now. The campaigners of the early 2000s, though, keeping it going back there, they were very conscious of what had been lost. They mourned the decline of civil society, and they saw the treatment of homeless people as a product of that loss. They called on human rights to legitimise unconditional economic and social support. The government in, uh, that was elected in 2007 was sympathetic to their aims, 
and doubtless saw a more holistic homelessness policy as an opportunity um, to distinguish themselves from the previous regime. And as I've said, homeless, uh, sorry, human rights activists were not the only group pushing for a change in policy, but I do think they paid, played a significant role in paving its way. I think understanding how variegated the political terrain of advocacy has been in the recent past reminds us that it can operate in multiple ways and it can sometimes fuel political possibilities from beneath the surface. As we know, neoliberalism is inherently unstable. We also know that human rights discourse is, in the words of one historian, Kenneth Camille, remarkably pliable. He, he called it beautifully, I think, perhaps the ultimate empty signifier. And I think this is a really salutary reminder that history doesn't actually operate in straight lines. They're not either fully progressive or fully regressive. History is always contingent. And in this story, I think it's quite interesting to observe that the most useful outcome came about at least in part because committed individuals made use of the independent institutions of civil society, despite the neoliberal incursion being more advanced. So seeing the operation of contingency at work in the relationship between advocacy and government, I think enables us in the present to draw at least some insight and inspiration from those who've done battle in the past. <laughs>